You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 137 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today is Laurie Norris. Hey, Laurie. Hey, Alexis. Uh, before we get started, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for any int- uh, listeners that are new to the program. Why don't you go ahead and go first? All right. I am Laurie Norris, and I am a perpetual grad student at the University of Georgia down here in Athens. My area of focus is rhetoric and composition, but also television studies and I uh, love to just talk about pop culture and whatnot, and uh, I am super ready for Christmas and also the end of the school year. What about you, Alexis? Uh, well, I <laughs> we're actually done with our school year uh, officially, so that's exciting. Um, but I live in southwest Missouri with my husband, Coyle, of the City of Man podcast, which is the political podcast for the Christian Humanist Radio Network, which is why I have to ask you, Laurie, how bad are the political ads for you in Georgia? I received, I think today so far, it's eight phone calls to the house um, asking me if I voted or if I want to vote or if I know that there's an election to which I want to just punch all of those robots right in their digital ears because there's not a you cannot be a human being in this state and not be aware that this is what like the fifth time we'll be going to the polls for this particular round of of of, of elections and yeah 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 I'm ready for January fifth. <laughs> I bet I'm so sorry I'm so very sorry because I've I've. I've heard things were bad in, in a lot of states, but man, I can't imagine anybody's going to have it as bad as, as Georgia's going to have it in the coming weeks. So um, anyway, uh, by training, I am a lawyer um, and I have done some adjuncting work at the university level. But these days, uh, most of what I'm spending my time with is uh, homeschooling my two little boys. Um, and so we're we're in the midst of, you know, Advent activities and and sort of taking getting ready to take a break from homeschooling to focus more on uh, the Christmas holidays, which is both super, super fun and exciting and also a challenge because I am not at all crafty. Um, and so trying to find activities for small children that do not rely heavily on crafting skills that I do not possess is something of a challenge. Um, <laughs> but um, but I, too, am very ready for Christmas. I love Christmas. I, I love Christmas. So um, – and, and I love getting to celebrate it through the eyes of children because I, I, I may have married the Grinch slightly. And so um, I now have two other people in my house who are on my side and are excited about Christmas and who we can we can do Christmassy stuff and be excited. And he can be bah humbugging off in the corner. And that's fine. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, looking forward to the Christmas holidays, which is appropriate um, given our topic today. 
Um, we're going to be talking today about um, Christmas foodways. Um, and I'll start out real quick by explaining uh, just a little bit uh, what this episode is not. So this episode is not going to be a discussion of food as a chore, uh, the daily drudgery of the weeknight dinner. Um, it's also not going to be an exposition of the biblical view of food or hospitality generally. We actually have episodes that have already covered those topics, which we will link in the show notes. Instead, today's episode is intended to be a conversation about special occasion cooking, holiday cooking, uh, particularly given the season, uh, Christmas holiday cooking. Uh, that is Christmas foodways. So, Lori, I have to tell you, um, when we were talking about this episode, I was unfamiliar with the term foodways. Can you give us a brief definition of foodways for any listeners who, like me, maybe haven't encountered the word before? Sure, absolutely. And it's not unusual that a, let's say, normal human being wouldn't <laughs> know, know this word necessarily because it's a relatively modern invention. I think the first time it was even used was over, only in the 1940s. And it's kind of the purview of academics. It is a pretentious way of talking about the eating habits and cuisines of people's regions, periods, things like that. So it takes more than just recipes and like the types of food or the ingredients. And it also includes the the political element behind how these ingredients end up in these hands and who prepares them and things like that. So it is a, in, in, in a way of putting it, it's kind of a field of study within academia. But uh, if you think of it, it's, it's a way of thinking about traditions for a people about food. All right. Thank you, Lori. That actually helps me a lot. And I think that'll, that'll help our listeners as well. Um, now that we have defined our terms a little bit, um, let's go ahead and start off our first segment by talking a bit about some of our own Christmas food ways, um, either our own personally, uh, those in our family, or, or even favorite food ways that we've seen uh, uh, portrayed in literature, film, or television. Uh, do you have any, any food ways that you'd like to share with us? Uh, yes, I am... <laughs> I am personally obsessed with food, have been my entire life, grew up eschewing Saturday morning cartoons for Saturday morning PBS cooking shows. Uh, it is, pun intended, my jam. <laughs> but I, <laughs> ironically, uh, my mother, uh, she's a fabulous cook. When she decides to cook, what she makes is delicious, and I have these, like, platonic ideal memories of her particular foods that I cannot replicate no matter how I try my uh, but my dad kind of an engineer about food but he doesn't cook very often my mom doesn't seem to get any joy from the act of cooking mm -hmm. it, it's uh, a thing that needs to be done so that you can have food in your body she likes food she enjoys eating but she doesn't find the preparation of food very pleasurable, which I think is why she was first with me as a daughter. Um, as I remember, I was like 12, I think. I have some food issues. Like I'm, I, I'm not very picky considering I'll eat anything once. And I, I, I do include live octopus and, um, you know, random stuff. I don't know what this is. Let me try it. 
uh, I have very few limits, but I have like certain issues around food. So like textural things mostly. And I was 12 and I saw this recipe that included like sauteed peppers and I wanted to make it. But at the time I couldn't eat peppers because the skins on them make, made me gag. And my mother said to me, and this has stuck with me my entire life. If you're going to make a thing, you have to eat the thing. And that is probably the most important food tradition that she has handed down to me <laughs> is that if I am going to consume a thing, I have to be a part of it. She would not have assumed that I've extrapolated this far out into things, but uh, it is defined the way I approach so much about food, not just the way that I make a recipe, but also the ethics of my consumption is if I am going to consume a thing, I have to be I, like prepare it. I have to, I have to know as much of it as possible. And, uh, that has taken over me, like trying to cook as much as possible, trying to ingratiate myself into the family traditions around holidays. Like I have a lot of aunts. I have a lot of uncles. I got a lot of cousins. And so like, Thanksgiving can be a big to do and I'm not, I'm one of the younger generations. So I don't necessarily have permission to run the show, however much I would like to, because I'm also um, an incorrigible control freak, but uh, I'm slowly through consistent application and my family saying, Oh yeah, that doesn't suck. I have now more and more responsibility in the preparation of foods though I am not allowed to do certain things there are certain things that only like my mom can do and that's her her stuffing her dressing for Thanksgiving it's dense and moist fabulous and she saves up her cornbread all year in the freezer for it and also the rum cake that my father inevitably requests every year for like his birthdays in early December so like his birthday and it's supposed to last until Christmas Eve his there's, they're going to be at church all day on Christmas Eve, and they're going to need rum cake to carry them through. So I'm not allowed to make that because my mom has to make that. But this year, I don't, there's, like, they're not going to be at church all day. So, oh, gosh, I just realized, I don't know if there's going to be rum cake. <laughs> <sighs> well, maybe this is your year. <laughs> I'm just going to quietly have an existential crisis right now. What are, what are, what are, what are like your, your families, um, like fighting off the Grinch Christmas food ways? Well, I was thinking about that and I think I, I'm very, I have a lot of very set Christmas traditions that I, I struggle with letting go of and being more, I, I should be more flexible with my Christmas traditions than I am because there's a right way to do it. And that's the way I've always done it. And that's the right way. And everyone else is just wrong. Um, yes. But I was thinking about it and I think most of my Christmas traditions are not actually food oriented, which is a complete shock to me because I, like you, am obsessed with food and I would have, I would have thought that if I love Christmas and I love the traditions, food would be a huge part of that. But I think there was a certain amount of variety growing up as to what we would have at different times. Um, my mom got in the habit uh, when I was a little bit more like high school, college age. She decided to start making shepherd's pie for Christmas Eve because, you know, shepherds. Um, <laughs> and so that was kind of the closest thing we had to a consistent um, like a consistent Christmas food thing that we did. 
um, we we did grits a lot on Christmas morning because um, we always do would go and do the stockings first when we got up um, and and then have breakfast and take a break and like shower and all of that stuff before doing the tree um, and grits were, were often um, what we would have for that breakfast. But a lot of the other food stuff around it, we typically didn't celebrate with extended family because they all lived so far away. So it was really just our family, um, and and the the menu would shift some. Um, my husband's family apparently would uh, do homemade tacos on Christmas Eve, <gasps> turkey and ham with the extended family on Christmas Day because they almost all live um, fairly close to each other. And then actually on um, on New Year's they would do homemade Chinese food, which this is rural Montana, so I'm fairly confident that's like. American Chinese food, not like Cantonese or something. Um, but so they had like very specific things they would do around the holidays. And I just didn't have those specific things. Everything we were doing was related to uh, preparations for presents or um, reading the Christmas story or the Christmas Eve service. Um, and it wasn't specific to food. We did have more, we have much more consistency in our Thanksgiving menu, um, which of course we've just, just come through that. But yeah, I was thinking about it, and I just I don't think I have a specific. It's not Christmas without the rum cake, or it's not Christmas without uh, a particular food item. Um, I started when my husband and I got married. I was sort of casting about for Christmas traditions for food, and I actually um, made a dish called Toad in the Hole. Are you familiar with Toad in the Hole, yes, Mary? Yes, I love Toad in the Hole. Well, I love anything <laughs> to do with toast. Uh, so, so Toad in the Hole. Um, is like a, well, the recipe that I make, it's a, a bacon wrapped sausage or more properly a banger. Cause it's a British dish that mm-hmm. then after you cook the sausage and wrapped it in bacon, um, you, you put it in a Yorkshire pudding and you bake, bake the Yorkshire pudding up. And, um, the recipe I originally made, I made for like a literary dinner where we were trying to, to do Yorkshire cuisine. And it was just like three full size bangers in a, in a pan. But I, I later realized that if I took like little sausages, um, and put them in like a popover tin or muffin tins or just a smaller dish. It would just be one little sausage in this little Yorkshire pudding. And this may be sacrilegious, but I always feel like it's a little baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes <laughs> in this little manger <laughs> of Yorkshire pudding. And also, P.S., it's delicious because it's Yorkshire pudding and sausage and bacon. Um, and so I've kind of like gotten into the groove of just making that every Christmas. I don't know if we'll do it this year for reasons that we'll get into later, but that's, that's my sort of initial first crack at a Christmas tradition is the possibly sacrilegious, sacrilegious consumption of the baby Jesus in the major toad in the hole. It is is officially now sacrilegious. (laughs) Sacrilegious. What is that too? Um, So (laughs) um, uh, did you, did you have any, um, are there food ways that you've seen in literature, film or television that have really, uh, caught your your eye well there's this one i can't remember okay so i can never remember the titles of things because that's not how my brain works but years ago uh my german friend vika she was a foreign exchange student and we were talking about like difference in tradition and she said there's this german tradition sort of modern one mostly about new years where they all like the entire country well, West Germany mostly, watches this movie, like Dinner for One, maybe? It's an old, it's old Hollywood, 
and this old lady, all of her friends have died, but she still sends out the invitation for her big Christmas dinner and her beloved uh, butler. She's got bad vision. So her beloved butler plays the role of all of her friends and just gets progressively drunker and drunker and drunker as as he goes through all of the courses, acting like all of these individual people. And um, I've been searching it out, searching it out. I think it's on the Criterion Collection, which I have access to because my former roommate left me his login. Woohoo! So if I can figure out what the actual official name of this movie is, I'm going to consume it in honor of Vika. And That's amazing. Yeah. I probably won't get as drunk as the butler in that, but I will have to raise a glass of sherry in his honor. That's fair. That's fair. And I don't know much about German culture, but there's a part of me that says that sounds really German. <laughs> yeah. Apparently it was a, a movie. The movie just ended up broadcast on New Year's Eve. Like, I don't know, in the eighties. The so towards, towards the, the, you know, the thawing of relations and stuff. And it, just struck a nerve. Okay. And then people are like, yeah, yeah, we like this. I mean, awesome. my, my knowledge of German television is that, and I've done this for like research for my dissertation, but ancillarily, only ancillarily, is that uh, like a lot of American stuff showed up in Germany later and, and West Germans became kind of obsessed with like Miami Vice. Miami Vice is massively popular in West Germany. Okay. And and then there are weird things like uh, most um, critical, like academic critical scholarship on the TV show um, The Good Wife came from Germany. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, German consumption of American media, I think, is... That's something I maybe I'll propose another episode down the line and force people to listen to my theories on this. But for now, we'll just stick with dinner for one. Eight, okay. Eight, dinner for one. All so, right. Something like that. I was thinking about this, and, and once again, I didn't have great answers other than um, I always think of it. It's not even necessarily about the food as much, but the scene in While You Were Sleeping where the family's having dinner and the mother's like, these mashed potatoes are so creamy, and they're having like nine different conversations at the same time. And um, and getting confused and like answering each other and arguing with each other, not realizing that they're talking about you no know, one is talking about whether Cesar Romero is tall and the other is talking about whether Cesar Romero is Spanish. Um, <laughs> and it's it is just this amazing picture of like a family dinner and kind of sort of a, that that platonic ideal of, of that family dinner. And it's not even about the food other than I always remember that she says the mashed potatoes are so creamy. Um, and then the <laughs> other. <laughs> The other food way that I'm I'm trying to figure out if I can do anything with is my kids would have requested roast beast for Christmas um, oh. because of uh, viewing the the Grinch, the original, the 1960s original Grinch. Um, we do not acknowledge the no, I, after. I, I, I do not. Um, so the the real Grinch. Um, so I'm not entirely sure if if they would accept like a roast beef and Yorkshire pudding as a substitute to kind of work or if they're like expecting this is what it needs to look like we've seen the show and and i don't know what i'll do about that but um so yeah that's my my food way <laughs> inspiration for this holiday is is whether it's worth it to try and replicate a a roast beast um <laughs> anyway we should move on to our next section um 
Our reading segment today focuses on an article that we're going to use more as a jumping off point for further discussion um, than really getting into um, picking apart the article itself as much, just because it's not coming from a Christian perspective and it's not actually about Christmas at all. Um, the piece we're talking about is called Reclaiming the Magical Herstory of Foods, so like history, but with her instead of his history of food from a blog called uh, Gather Victoria that is a wildcraft blog. Um, the author, um, whose name is Danielle Proham Olson, uh, writes about the early relationship of women to the kitchen, uh, not as one of drudgery and subjugation, but potentially one of empowerment, spiritual and economic authority uh, prior to food preparation being becoming uh, part of the invisible unpaid economy. Uh, she, she talks a lot about how women's bodies provide nourishment and then they also provide uh, nourishing or they nourish others with their work uh, in, in at the hearth as well. Um, and she argues that women were the first cultivators, gatherers and inventors of kitchen processes like baking and preservation and cooking, but that they are overlooked in the literature. Um, she says that she's had to look in non-traditional, non-mainstream sources devoted to things like fertility cults and folklore in order to find some of this information. She's really looking to dive into the history, or in her words, the herstory of the hearth, but she's found it to be a neglected area of study. Uh, as an example, she points to Michael Pollan of The Omnivore's Dilemma and a documentary series called Cooked. Um, and in the book that was uh, that the documentary was based on, he notes that for most of history, most of humanity's food has been cooked by women working out of public view and without public recognition. But Olson points out that his series, the documentary series, continues that same tradition by failing to use the pronoun she to describe the earliest cooks. Um, so the author Pollen is encouraging us to recover our essential link to the natural world and reclaim our lost food traditions, but overlooks women and what Olson calls women's food magic. Uh, and that, that limitation is not just uh, in male scholarship, according to Olson. Women historians are more likely to focus on correcting the public record of women's achievements, and feminist food scholarship um, focuses on disordered relationships to food or just ignores it altogether as a marker of patriarchal oppression. In Olson's view, uh, prior to its role in an invisible unpaid economy, cooking was actually a source of economic autonomy and authority. Uh, women had control over the crops they harvested, cultivated, cooked, and consumed. Um, particularly in gift-giving societies, um, people did not pay to eat, and food was viewed as a gift of the earth. It was only later, as food came to be seen as a product to be bought and sold, that women's work was commodified. Uh, and also, she talks a lot about um, how faith and spirituality were interwoven with food as well. Um, images of goddesses were all over the kitchen and its contents. Cooking was infused with prayers and magic. Uh, for example, cooking a loaf of bread to be plowed into the field in order to ensure a plentiful harvest. Now we have a commercially produced product devoid of spiritual meaning, acquired and consumed outside of community in contrast to communal harvest and songs and rituals of the past. So Olson is wondering, uh, at the end of her piece, she's wondering, what if cooking in those early economies was far from drudge work assigned to the lesser sex? What if it was originally a source of women's empowerment? What if it provided fellowship and an avenue of creative, artistic, and spiritual expression? What if eating and feasting were celebratory occasions to honor the life-sustaining gifts of the earth, opportunities for women to nourish and pleasure themselves? So that's a brief summary of the article. Laurie, what did you think of this article? What does Olsen get right? What does she get wrong? What's missing? 
I have to put aside my natural uh, writing teacher kind of approach to it because, I mean, this is this is essentially a blog post, and I should not be mocking or denigrating a woman doing a blog post because she writes a little bit like a first year writing student in that her statements are broad, sweeping generalizations that ignore a lot of important nuance. So that's on me, not on her. Um, but my my biggest thing taking away from it is that as from the article is the absence of conversation about the role of women of color in these things, because her, her piece definitely comes from a European tradition. And uh, you can include America and like Canada in, in that same tradition as well. And so much of our food and our food ways have been built upon the bodily labor, the unpaid bodily labor of women of color, that it seems like a gross oversight on her part. Um, in the comments at the bottom of the article, somebody raises this issue and she's like, yeah, I totally should have. My bad. Um, I think it's maybe a sticking point for me um, here in Georgia, in the Southeast, uh, partially because, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really pedantic, but also because it's a huge and present issue here. The, the way that, uh, black bodies were used to create these traditions and not remunerated for any of their labor. So that is an issue for me is like looking at what it means that a lot of out my because I'm, I'm, I mean, I'll, I'll say Missouri can be Southern. Um, <laughs> well, uh, it, like, it can be, it's kind of a other thing. And it can also be Midwestern. There's so mm-hmm. many things it could be if it wanted mm-hmm. to. Um, but so many of the traditions that I have are built upon the labor of black women. And a lot of those go back to black women who had no choice in the matter. And I think it's, it's very important for me, especially like not me as one individual, but like it's important to me, especially that when we talk about the food traditions that we have, we trace them back to the people who originate them. And my love, like my, my love of rum cake. Yeah, there's a psychological weight of the rum trade and all of the slavery that was built up on it. But also, like, who probably came up with that recipe? Was it probably Betty Crocker? Okay. Who did Betty Crocker as a company steal it from? Probably, most likely, a black woman working in a very fancy house because that's the way that Southern cuisine, as opposed to, like, like soul food and stuff, mm-hmm. it's more of, like, a... a Black diaspora, northern thing. But southern food was fancy people in the rich people houses, hosting fancy people for the fancy things, and which meant, you know, French food. But those fancy things being made by black women with native, like, local indigenous uh, ingredients. So, ironically... And this is something that um, Edna Lewis points out in her really spectacular book from 1976, The Taste of Country Cooking. Uh, 
the fancy, fancy food of rich white people is the same as the everyday food of black sharecroppers who were doing the cooking for the rich white people. Uh, they, there is no difference. Like the, the fancy people ate the same as the former slaves because the former slaves are doing the cook. So for me, if we're going, if we're going to reclaim any sort of feminist relationship with food, it has to include acknowledging the role that uh, oppressed groups have played in the creation of our food tradition. Oh, that's all great. And I think you're, I think you're right that that is, that is an, an oversight and something that would, that, that is a necessary component of any kind of grounded and, and full-throated discussion on the topic. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, again, using this primarily as a, sort of a jumping off point, um, to talk about the idea of food as an expression of love. Um, and and I, I specifically want us to talk about food as presence in, in both senses of the words, that is food as being present and food as a present that you give someone else. Uh, first off, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about food as presence and as being present. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about this uh, ever since Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, even before the pandemic, we knew that cooking a loved one's traditional dish could create a feeling of presence even in absence. Cooking a recipe passed down from a departed parent or grandparent can help us feel more connected to their memory. Um, I inherited from my grandmother her oblong cast aluminum Dutch oven and the whisks she always used to make grits. When I use them, I remember her and I think of her um, and I feel connected to her. This last Thanksgiving, um, just a couple weeks ago, um, making and serving my Aunt Ginger's cranberry jello salad that we always had growing up, cooking mom's butternut squash apple bake and the turkey pot pie with mom's um, pie crust recipe, doing all those things, I felt a little less isolated and a little more connected to those people in my life. And, and obviously this can cut both ways. Um, if you're missing out on a dish that's traditionally prepared by a loved one or feeling the pressure to take on those responsibilities, that, that could increase the feeling of isolation. So if you felt the pressure to now make a rum cake, um, that could be an added responsibility and, and pressure on you. Um, I saw this Thanksgiving more than one social media post from adult friends of mine lamenting being separated from their mothers on Thanksgiving, in part because mom always makes the turkey. Um, trying to take on that responsibility, it could be a source of stress, although there, there can also be a potential for joy there in learning a new skill and emulating the mother that you love, being being her to your family, uh, sort of taking that on and taking on, on her as, as a result. Um and I, I was thinking about all this, you know, this this sense of invisible community that you could have through food in this way. I think it's particularly familiar for Christians who believe ourselves to be part of a universal church across time and space. Christians a thousand years ago and Christians a thousand years from now, should Christ tarry, uh, are all bound to Christ and as such are bound to each other, despite never having actually shared uh, physical um, time and place on Earth. Um and so, so I, th I think there's a there's a piece of that in it as well, and then also uh, it feels like this year more than ever I am aware of the waiting of Advent, uh, waiting for the arrival of the beloved, the joyful reunion that is yet to come. It's a pale, pale, pale picture, I know, but but this Advent more than any other I can remember has been characterized by a sense of waiting and enduring and anticipating. Um, and and to a sense of alienation, uh, away from homeness, right? We are not at home. Something is off. We are not at home. 
Um, even in our homes, we are not at home. Things are not as they as they ought to be or as they will one day be again. Um, that is, in some ways, perhaps a shadow of the believer's true and eternal citizenship. Um, so, yeah, lots of thoughts about about what it means to use cooking and food and food ways um, to invoke presence. Do you have any thoughts about that, Lori? Oh, uh, I have lots. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so last Christmas, uh, before we knew that this year was going to hate all of us, one of my aunts gave me um, my maternal grandmother's cookbook. It's just from like right after the war, home economic kind of thing. It teaches you how to cook venison as well as uh, volivants and all sorts of stuff. And some of some of it, I don't even know what some of these things. I don't know that I could replicate them because they're just. I don't know what some of these words mean, um, but I made it my goal during uh, COVID and the orig original lockdowns to try and prepare as much as I could from that because my grandmother's been gone for some time. She she died she died uh, in 2009, um, so this was a an opportunity to to reconnect with her. Um, my paternal grandmother also had was uh, she was a ferocious woman. Um, and phenomenal and just like kind of a bulldog in some ways. And my memories of her are, are this gruff, taciturn face offering me biscuits and chocolate gravy and fried chocolate pies and knowing intimately as a small child that anyone who gives you chocolate in this form loves you. So like, Trying to replicate foods that they may have prepared from the original recipes really brought me a sense of like calm. So my roommates may have something to say about that, considering I canned so much. Like, so I pickled so many things, um, but I feel better as a person because I pickled almost everything I touched. And um, it was it was being connected to people that also lived through incredible hardship that was very powerful for me because both of both of those women not they didn't just get through the depression and World War II. They thrived. They had fabulous families and they made wonderful lives for those families. And you know they were successful because they ended up with me. I was the result. Uh, <laughs> Can't argue so, with that. <laughs> so, like, this kind of distinctly feminine connection with my own history that I have now with this tangible object of this this cookbook and these handwritten recipes from my paternal grandmother, it's it's been a, a stabilizing force for me. And they were both devoutly religious women. And, and I think that's coming into my understanding of Advent. Like, Advent's always been my favorite time of year, except for my own birthday, because that is my favorite holy day. Uh, but I adore Advent precisely because I suck at waiting. I'm no good at it. And all of Advent makes me 
aware of myself as a person of faith um, and puts me in a position where I have to contemplate why I believe in things and why I'm going through these rituals that are so uncomfortable for me, the waiting part. And it's not just for presents and rum cake. It's because Jesus loves me and I love Jesus. Um, but having this connection to my grandmother's in this time specifically has been really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I think in this, in this time where, where there is such a lack of, of physical presence, it makes sense that we would rely even more on the, the invisible presence that we, that we can acquire uh, or experience through, through some of the food preparations. Um, I think too, another way that, that food can be an expression of love uh, is also, so sort of the presence is almost sort of a, a receiving of love. Like as I cook, I'm, I feel like I'm a recipient of uh, the, the presence and I, I feel loved and feel connected to something. But I also, um, I think most people that I know who cook also use food as a way to, to pour out love on other people. Um, so to, to give, uh, to give gifts of, of food. Um, and I, I haven't had <laughs> as much opportunity to do that um, of late. And I've actually gotten into the habit um, over the last several years. I have a mother-in-law who loves to make jelly. And so when she comes to visit um, and with a whole cooler full of uh, of juice and things that she has, has collected, uh, we'll, we'll go through a, a few days of marathon jelly making, um, which is great because I can do that any time of the year. And that can be stuff I distribute at Christmas. Um, and, and it's an opportunity to be creative because we'll make a couple jars of strawberry rhubarb and then we'll say, well, what happens if we add a little ginger or what happens if we throw in a glug of bourbon or or some cardamom or whatever? Um, so I get to be a little bit playful and creative um, and make something that's shelf stable so that the poor recipient doesn't have to eat 10 different plates of cookies in the month of December. Um, so jellies and jams have been a great a great source of an opportunity to, to bless other people. Uh, I also last year discovered I was fiddling around with um, infusing honey and I tried a couple of things. I tried dried lavender and it didn't really do a whole lot. And I tried dried orange zest and it didn't do a whole lot, but I put a vanilla bean in honey and holy moly, it was amazing. And unfortunately vanilla beans have gone up a little in price since a few years ago when I started making my own vanilla. But even then a, a, an individual vanilla bean, if you buy them in bulk is not actually that expensive and just pop a vanilla bean, scrape it into the, a little jar of honey and, and sort of stir it up. And it is just, it, the, the vanilla really mellows the honey, so it doesn't have that really strong honey flavor. Um, and it's, it's some good stuff. And it's even easier than jelly. So, uh, and my, my in-laws actually have a, an apiary that puts uh, bee boxes on their ranch. And so they basically have an almost unlimited supply of honey that they have access to. So um, that's been a great something different to give to someone it's shelf stable vanilla honey it's pretty uh it's not super adventurous you know a lot of pe people people even people who are not risk takers with food will probably try a vanilla honey um and so i've been i've been using those somewhat as as food presents uh what about you laurie do you have ways that you use food as gifts uh yes it's my primary love language actually um forcing people to accept food from me uh <laughs> I don't remember that one in Gary Chapman's book. It's in the sequel. Oh, um, okay, sure. <laughs> so, uh, like many people, I have uh, obsessively binge-watched a lot of Great British, British Bake Off over the 
COVID and uh, regularly fall asleep thinking of, oh, well, how would I do that? Um, uh, Katie Grubbs and I, uh, from the podcast fame, mm-hmm. she and I regularly go back and forth about what would you do for a showstopper? And sometimes I, I move beyond just thinking about it into the actual doing of it and then force those cakes onto people. Um, but I also regularly, and they're not going to hear this until after they get them. So it's okay. I regularly give my father, uh, chocolate chip cookies as, as his Christmas present because he, he hates things. He, if he wants a thing, he purchases it for himself. Um, but he loves chocolate chip cookies almost more than he loved any of his family members. So <laughs> all, what, my niece was born on his birthday. So he lo- he definitely loves her more than chocolate chip cookies. We have established that hierarchy, but I make him those big deluxe fancy and they get more ridiculously elaborate every year. But this year, because, uh, I'm broke. Um, my family are all getting food as presents, as as their Christmas presents. My sister's got three children who will be 11, 9, and 7 by uh, the beginning of January or mid-January. Um, they're all getting cookies, like their own box of specialty cookies. So naturally, because Auntie Laurie is um, a masochist, that means I am making eight different types of cookies for them. For my sister, who loves margaritas more than she loves most people, I've made her homemade margarita mix and a special uh, lime salt to put on the rim. And yes, I did dehydrate my own limes for that. Like my brother-in-law is getting hot honey. And my mother requested things that you could put with chicken. So she's getting things that can go with chicken. But... Uh, Food as gifts is the number one way that I show that I love you because if I'm taking this time to force calories down your throat, it means that you matter to me. I mean, I think that's that makes a lot of sense. I certainly know that I have been blessed by other people making making food for me. Um, even before I was a mom who had to make weeknight dinner all the time and was just like, oh, I didn't make it. This tastes amazing. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> Well, and I think, too, one of the things that I try to keep in mind with with all of this, using food as a way to bless others, is it can be it can be a challenge sometimes, I think, to not let the food eclipse the people. Um, so one of the things that I've been thinking about specifically, um, sort of sort of a, you know, a little twist on on the saying about the Sabbath, right, is that that food is created for people, not people for food. Um, and so as I look ahead to to holidays, um and and maybe feeding at at the holiday table someone who has dietary or health restrictions and what does it look like to adapt traditions and food ways for those individuals um what does it mean to cook and show love for a family member who eats gluten-free or has dietary restrictions due to heart disease should i still make my bacon wrapped sausages and yorkshire pudding (laughs) or or might i love them better by adjusting the menu to welcome them and relieve any sense of discomfort or exclusion that they might feel am i loving my family if i cling so tightly to my food ways that i either exclude someone entirely or as i am sometimes want to do double my workload by making a special menu in addition to the regular traditional one um, which can then 
which can then be a recipe, pun intended, for resentment, as I'm already, you know, if I'm already feeling frazzled trying to get everything done. Um, but on the other hand, the traditions and patterns are good. We talked a lot about how those connections to the past are good things. Um, and, and so uh, if abandoned entirely, something is lost. So trying to preserve the continuity and tradition with flexibility and grace is a real dance that I, I have not perfected by any stretch, but I'm trying to think well about remembering I'm doing this because I love this person and therefore this person, even if what I want to make for them is something full of gluten that they will enjoy, if they are a person who cannot digest gluten, then uh, I'm setting myself up for, for frustration and I'm not loving them well. I need to find a way to love that person, including the limitations of their diet. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I try and keep that in mind. Um, as a person who shows love through food, I host dinner parties in precedented times, not in COVID times. Right. Um, sure. <laughs> but like having people over for food and, and big parties around, like I make a big deal out of my birthday every year because I may have mentioned it is my, my holiest day of the year. Sure. It is, it is the day of which I celebrate myself the most. Um, and as a narcissist for jokes, it's, it's great. So I always try and have like lots of stuff. And I, I figure if I make everything vegan or have as much vegan as possible, everybody can eat that. Right. And then I don't have my, my vegan friends don't have to feel awkward. They don't have mm -hmm. to ask what can they have access to. They can have access to everything. And so it's, it's my way of thinking about it is like, if I try and accommodate as many people as possible by removing the, as many troubling things as possible, then everybody's happy. Uh, and that's something I actually did uh, for my church. We have our communion bread, which is essentially gingerbread. It has so much sugar in it and uh, five spice powder. Okay. Um, the, the first time I was asked to bake the bread for communion because my roommate was my old roommate on the worship committee. And so he's like, Hey, you can bake, bake this bread. I looked at the recipe and I thought to myself in our congregation here in Athens, Georgia, where we are deeply progressive and we're filled with academics. There are a lot of vegans. There mm -hmm. are a lot of people who cannot eat this communion bread because it's made with so much animal product, so much dairy. And I just, so I quietly replaced all of that and it turned out the same because it's mostly sugar and no one notices if you switch in nut milk when everything is mostly sugar. Right. And uh, my roommate and I were, were sitting on our back row quietly talking about it. And uh, a lady who's sitting in front of me, Gail, it was next month was going to be her time. And she's like, Oh, that's a good point. She turned around. And we were talking about it. And so I told her how I made those changes. And then when it was her turn, she made them too. And uh, it was like, yes, it's so much better. Now everybody can do it except, you know, mm -hmm. the gluten-free people. They already had their, their gluten-free station because that's that's a thing that everybody thinks about easily because no one wants IBS. But it's harder <laughs> <laughs> it's harder to keep in your mind the people who don't eat the same as you. And it's not like we have halal or kosher dietary requirements during communion because um, it's bread. There right. are no meat, no animals to be killed. 
because uh, it's bread. And that was a little thing that Gail and I talked about that felt really important. But doing this is actually the first time that I've talked publicly about this. So when I say it was us doing this quietly, I am now trumpeting myself in a way that I'm not really that comfortable with. Right. But, uh, we spread it around. It's like all you have to do is make this one little change and suddenly you're including people instead of excluding people. And that's one I think is a magical power of food is the way mm -hmm. that you can make your table larger by just a little bit of thought. And that's what Jesus, like, I think that's what Jesus would do, right? If Jesus were a baker. So if like, if we just think about like make a larger table, that also starts to allow us to make space for like the black women who created the food culture that I'm a part of now make my table larger, you know, make sure it's including everyone's stories. I am not the person to tell the story of like indigenous food ways in Georgia. Uh, I'm not Cherokee. I'm not, I'm not Creek. I'm not Choctaw. I can't do these things. Uh, but I can make the table bigger, which means sometimes I'll shut up and let them, them have some spotlight, which is hard. Talker. But I think that is something that I'm learning about food. And I think it's a deeply feminist act is to make your table bigger. That's what Jesus wants. I think that's, I think that's a great point. Um, and I think too, um, I wanted to mention briefly, um, we, we don't have time to talk about this today, but uh, on the topic of um, letting sort of the frustration of the stress of food preparation affect uh, the way we relate to others. So when I get angry and irritable um, or I'm not paying attention to my kids because I'm in the middle of preparing Thanksgiving, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not loving them in order to love them. Um, <laughs> Um, and that, 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 that difficulty of choosing to be present, um, versus, you know, not wanting to neglect the tradition, um, to reduce your stress, but not wanting to be irritable. And um, we do talk about that more in the complementarian-ish episode on the story of Martha in the Bible, because it has a lot of those same notes in that story. Um, we'll put that, uh, a link to that in the show notes as well. If you want to think more about trying to balance stress and providing for family and loving people through food, but not, you know, yelling at the kids so you can work on the birthday cake for the kid that you just yelled at. Um, not that I've done that in the last month. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then one other point that I want to make before we move on to um, our passing on section, um, Olson in the original piece did talk some about faith and spirituality in connection with food. Um, she is writing from what I would characterize as a pagan perspective, or at least writing about pagan practices, goddess cuisine and, and whatnot. Um, I have no plans to plow a loaf of bread into my vegetable garden to ensure a plentiful harvest. But as I was reading the piece, I was convicted about the missed opportunity to incorporate some, sp uh, incorporate some spiritual elements into my cooking. Um, and, I mean, we, we, we see in the Bible, so I don't want to don't want to go pagan with it, but we do see in the Bible um, the intermingling of the spiritual and the culinary in in scripture. Um, and I was thinking about all the times I've made baby meals for for women or for families in my community. And and I was excited to provide a meal for them. I knew practically how helpful it was for me when someone made meals um, when I had my kids and was excited about that. But I I don't think I ever thought to pray over the meal as I was preparing it, 
or to use the time of meal preparation um, to pray for the recipients specifically. And I just thought, what a missed opportunity to bless someone and show love in a practical, physical way, while also blessing and showing love on that spiritual level. Um, and, and I admit, selfishly, part of the, the difficulty is uh, cooking time when I have it, it is also podcast listening time. So I'm trying to catch up on podcasts and listen to stuff. And so I'm not always in that space of of um, meditation and contemplation. But but perhaps my time or some of it, at least, would be better spent praying for those I'm trying to love with food. And then to loop it back to Christmas, you know, how how could I specifically pray over the preparation of my family's traditional foods such as they are? Are there passages that I could be meditating on as I make something this Christmas? Are there songs I particularly want to listen to or sing as I'm working to incorporate uh, and connect those spiritual truths with um, with the embodiment of, of love that I'm, I'm working on as, as someone working in the kitchen. Um, I just, I was thinking about that. And so that, that's something that I, I want to try and, and implement better going forward uh, to deliberately tie in prayer, meditation, song, uh, some, some of those spiritual elements as I'm seeking to, to love others through, um, through food. Did you have any uh, additional comments, Laurie, on the spirituality of Christmas food ways before we get to passing on? Well, it's a little bit more general than just, Christmas food ways, but it's as food as preparation and, and become and food as an act of worship itself. Uh, it's something that I've, I've tried to do a kind of a spiritual mindfulness about food. Um, there's, you have your mise en place, you have all of the food that you, the, the preparation that goes into setting up your ingredients and portioning them out and, Putting them in, uh, chopping things into the right size, you know, French firm, mise en place. Yeah, if you, you work a line, you got to work your mise, you got to get it all in, in order. Um, there's, I got this from Edna Lewis. Uh, she describes her fried chicken recipe, and it's a, only a seasonal thing because you only make it when the chickens are right and plump and juicy and, and when the actual cooking process will be appropriate for them. You go through, you do it in such a, a particular manner and you take great care with the, the fat that you use and how you season the fat and how you do everything. And in, in her words, it's that's how you give thanks for it. So I try and I think, I'm not there yet, but I'm getting there because I'm also not one for paying all that much attention. It's not my podcast time, but it is my turn on a record, play it real, real loud, or maybe have a soccer game in the, in the background that I might otherwise be too emotionally invested in and get too angry for. So I have to be in another room and listen to it. But when I'm baking or when I'm cooking, paying careful attention to all of the things that God has provided for me that are going into this meal and having respect for all of them and how they ended up in front of me so that in the final product, I am worshiping God. I'm creating something beautiful from the things that God has provided for me so that I can then, I don't know, reflect some of that beauty back up to, to my creator. I love that. That's great. Um, yeah, that's a really, really convicting also and encouraging a, a great way to be 
you know, we're coming off, still coming off of Thanksgiving. And, and I know there's a lot of ways that we maybe don't feel as thankful this year, but that's a great reminder to work into, um, into our food ways. Um, you know, it's, 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 I always feel like I'm, I'm not a super thankful person, but man, when you start to make a list of the things you have to be thankful for, it's always just an absolute tome of things. Um, and I think that's a great way to, to be developing the habit of thankfulness as well as mindfulness, as well as worship, um, all through that, that act of love towards someone else. So I love that. Um, well, we are running towards the end of our time. So we'll go ahead now and move into our uh, recommendations, our passing on section. Um, I have two recommendations. One, if you are like me, interested in incorporating more prayer into things like food preparation or other daily tasks, um, I was, I encountered on a, a website for a woman who makes prayer journals that was advertised on a different podcast that I listened to. Um, and I, I haven't tried her journals, so I don't know how they are, but she had uh, this printout uh, for house prayers. And it's a list that's sort of by location in your home of some ideas to pray for and then blanks to fill in if there's like things you want to always pray for when you're uh, in your driveway, uh, maybe for relationships with neighbors or things you want to pray for when you're in your dining room or things you want to pray for in the kitchen or the office or when you're doing laundry. Um, and so I really liked that idea because I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at prayer. Um, and my husband always likes to say, John Calvin said he was terrible at prayer too and really struggled with it. So it's okay. We're, it's, it's just, it's hard. It's hard for everybody. Um, but, but I thought this was a way that if I could associate locations in my house with prayers and build some of those habits, um, to be prayerful as I go throughout my day, um, and, and, you know, pray for certain things in the laundry room or, or wherever, um, that that would be a way to, to be more faithful in prayer and to have prayer permeating, um, the whole of my life in, in a more thorough and robust way. Um, and then a related recommendation, uh, there's a book called Every Moment Holy uh, that's put out by Rabbit Room Press, um, if anybody is familiar with Andrew Peterson or any of his stuff. Um, and it is a book of uh, liturgies for every day. Uh, so they have, oh, it's a liturgy. Um, there's a liturgy on washing windows. There's a liturgy for the first morning cup of coffee. Um, there's a liturgy for doing laundry. But the ones I thought were particularly relevant, that he has a liturgy for pre preparation of a meal and then a liturgy for preparation of an artisanal meal. So sort of the, the fancier, you know, pull out all the stops kind of thing. And there's even a, a liturgy in here for hurried preparation of a meal. <laughs> <laughs> so I also really appreciate it. So he's got just some really beautiful liturgies, um, you know, prayers to pray for different types of people in particular vocations for different occasions. Uh, a second volume is actually coming out this spring that is specifically a lot of liturgies for loss and grief and hard things. Um, and I haven't decided whether I'm going to get that one because it sounds like it could be really good and also really hard to read. Um, well, too soon. <laughs> but it's um, but it's a beautiful book. It, it's got like a sort of a faux leather look to to it. Um, and so we'll put a link in the show notes to that. Uh, there, the illustrations in it are like a wood print kind of look to them, a woodblock print. Um, and it's just a beautiful book and and a wonderful way to sort of bring the the, the spiritual into to the mundane um, in, in ways that we've sort of been talking about. Uh, Laurie, what was your recommendation? So I also have two other two of them. Um, my first one is, uh, well, you, I've mentioned Edna Lewis a couple of times because I love her and, uh, she's amazing and her work is important. 
because her her like foundational text, the Ur text of contemporary Southern cooking, uh, the the Taste of Country Cooking, kind of a memoir recipe book. It, it's a little bit difficult to find. It was published in 1976. Um, can be very expensive if you find an original copy, but um, they're beautiful. I would like to recommend a piece uh, from the New York Times that Frances Lamb actually wrote about her from 2015. So about 10 years after she passed away, it's um, Edna Lewis and the Black Roots of American Cooking. It's very accessible, but it also introduces you to this really important person in American food writing and in American uh, food culture. And the second thing I want to uh, recommend to everybody is um, the Southern Foodways Alliance run by John T. Edge, who I've run into on campus here several times to the point where, like, I think he looked at me like he recognized me. And that's it's wild. Um, they have a podcast and a magazine online called Gravy, and it's just fabulous. And it talks about Southern food today. Southern food's roots, how that plays out, the diversity of Southern food, the the role of immigrants in Southern food, because there are a lot of immigrant communities across the Southeast, and they are very important to modern interpretations of our our foodways. So I would like to rec- recommend the Gravy magazine and, and podcast, but you only listen to their podcast after you listen to ours. Right, right, of course. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, those sound like wonderful recommendations. Thank you. Well, with that, uh, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendation for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes for this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Laurie Norris, I'm Alexis Neal. Tune in in two weeks for our Best of 2020 Recommendations episode. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.